the Beatitudes. <laughs> oh, that was cute if you, if you chuckled. One of the most well-known and most confusing and misunderstood pieces of scripture. But first, how did we get here? Well, we started out a few weeks ago with Jesus and his cousin John. And Jesus was getting baptized in the Jordan River. Why does Jesus get baptized? Jesus, the sinless second person of the Holy Trinity, why does he even need to be baptized? Great question, nobody knows. But lots of people have had very strong opinions about it for the last 2,000 years. Even John was confused. But Jesus insisted because, quote, it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. It's a weird flex, but we'll go with it. And if you pay attention, righteousness is going to come up throughout Matthew's gospel. Next, the Holy Spirit, who was just a second ago alighting on the freshly baptized Jesus as a gentle dove, or as a flailing pigeon, depending on your translation preference, starts driving him out into the wilderness for a time of fasting. This is why people write catchy songs uh, telling Jesus to take the wheel and not the Holy Spirit. She's a bit unpredictable. Anyway, Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness fasting, praying, and reflecting. After this time, the adversary shows up, and there's a tete-a-tete -tete between the two of them. The devil knows exactly who Jesus is and wants to know what kind of son of God do you claim to be? Will this mean power and privilege and access? And Jesus sits him down every single time. This is not a son of God like Caesar or the Pharaoh. Neither will this reign be anything like any you have seen before. Beat it, devil. Which is where folks usually stop their reading, but we continued in chapter 4 last week. After the time in the wilderness, Jesus cracked his knuckles and went out and started his ministry as the Messiah. From that time, Matthew writes, Jesus began to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Which brings us now to today. You're all caught up. And the very important question is, what is the kingdom of heaven? Well, let me tell you what it is not. It is not white fluffy clouds and angels with harps. Sorry. It isn't even end times. Uh, while I love to tip my hat to German theologians of the Middle Ages and onwards, the answer to this concept uh, the concept of the kingdom of heaven isn't always eschatology, even that's a, though that's a fun word to say. Eschatology is a study of last things or final judgment, end times. For Jesus, John, and their immediate companions, when they spoke of the kingdom or the reign of heaven, they were describing something far more present, the next thing to happen what is about to transpire. In fact, some scholars have started using the term proximatology or nextology, which is slightly easier to say, to describe what is happening here, as well as in parts of Mark, like Mark chapter 13 uh, and the book of Revelation, proximatology. The kingdom of heaven is not some far off reality it is what is breaking into this very moment, 
reality itself, the seeds of salvation and redemption, just on the cusp of bursting and blooming before our very eyes don't blink. Repent, change your hearts and lives, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So then Jesus picks up a few fishermen to start his squad of disciples, and he begins to teach about this kingdom of heaven, and he does some healing along the way too. When enough of a gathering has amassed itself, Jesus goes up a mountain, tip of the hat to Moses, and begins to preach. We have come to call this his Sermon on the Mount. And for the record, it was way longer than 20 minutes. So just jot that down. And Rachel, it's way longer than eight minutes too, so maybe mention that at your next preaching class. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount takes up three whole chapters in Matthew's Gospel, and it's jam-packed with all sorts of topics and sayings and directives and does not follow the rules of sermon writing. Also, write that down. Here's the other thing, though. It's full of traps. Gary, when you're making up my sermon title for your recordings this week, and I don't know where you get those from, but I'm going to invite you to use for this Sunday, it's a trap. I'll even let you use a picture of Admiral Akbar. He's writing it down. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jesus himself was trying to trap anyone. No, no. But over the millennia, in the various translations, and the libraries of theology and doctrine, and the institutionalizing, whitewashing, and calcifying of religion, we've completely lost touch with the rhetorical devices that the original audience would have understood as inseparable from Jesus' message. We read the Bible too rigidly, too stoically, and with too much literalism. I said was I said. I'll just let you simmer on that. We read the Bible too rigidly, too stoically, and with too much literalism. We've turned the Bible into bricks and mortar, where it's meant to be the springs on trampolines. So when we come up against something like the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount in general, we brace ourselves for a wall of shoulds and have-tos. We ready ourselves for the marching orders, the entry requirements for being part of Jesus' club. Do you know what I mean? I've actually heard people say, uh, when I hear the Beatitudes, it's hard for me not to hear Jesus as stating the terms under which I might be blessed. Thanks, Apple. Just scroll to the bottom and say, I agree, it's fine. For instance, blessed are the pure in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, can lead one to ask, am I pure enough in spirit? And conclude, I should try to be more pure in spirit. Or when one hears, blessed are the peacemakers, then it means one needs to up their peacemaking game, so long as it doesn't adversely affect the bottom line, right? Oops. But here's the first trap of Jesus' sermon. And it's a trap that we have set for ourselves. The trap is as simple as it is subtle. It is believing that Jesus is setting up the conditions of blessing rather than just blessing his hearers. Let me say that again. Jesus isn't in this moment laying out requirements 
or setting up conditions. Jesus is simply blessing. And that makes us feel uncomfy. Grace usually does. So we do some weird mental and theological gymnastics to twist Jesus' words into a to-do list, into boxes that we can check. We're okay with grace as long as we can work for it. But that's a trap. And we have done this to ourselves. And we've done it to one another, but that's a sermon for another day. We've also messed up the word blessing, which doesn't help our cause. We think it has something to do with happiness and health and wealth and makes for a really good post on Instagram. I assure you, it does not. Greek scholar Rob Mialis writes, it is impossible to insist too strongly on the meaning of this Greek word which we interpret blessing. Makarios, this is much more than contentment. It's an interior joy that becomes external. Uh, elation translated into shouts and songs and acclamations. Blessed is not a subjective feeling of happiness but a declaration of an objective reality. Richard Rohr writes in his book, Jesus' Plan for the New World, the Beatitudes offer us more, a more spacious world, a world where I do not have to explain everything, fix everything, or control anything beyond myself, a world where we can allow a capitalized larger mystery to work itself out through us and in us. Those, or these things, rather, are done to us more than anything we can do. End quote. Wonderfully, it is not about being right anymore. Who can fully do the Beatitudes right? It's a rhetorical question. Nobody can because they are not a list of requirements. The original audience understood that. We have lost it over time and turned it into a minefield. It's a trap to think that it's a list of requirements. Jesus is just speaking blessing, full stop. All of these conditions which have left many feeling oppressed or devalued or forgotten or derided by the empire, by society, even by their family and friends, they're not barriers to God. They're not barriers to God's blessing or God's grace or God's presence. Jesus speaks blessings promised by God to those people who already are what the Beatitude describes. Beatitudes do not describe nine different kinds of people who go to heaven, but are nine declarations of blessedness, contrary to all appearances, of the community living in anticipation of God's reign. Like all else in Matthew, they are oriented to life together in the community of discipleship, not to individual ethics. We do love a self-improvement strategy, but this ain't it. Ready for another trap? You are salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but it is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. 
No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God in heaven. Notice, Jesus doesn't say to his disciples that they might become salt and light if they just tried real hard. Again, we are faced with the insidious temptation to hear Jesus' words as requirement rather than blessing, as command rather than commissioning. Jesus doesn't say, if you want to become salt and light, do this, or before I'll call you salt and light, I need to see this from you. Rather, he says both simply and directly, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It is, as with the Beatitudes, sheer blessing, commendation, affirmation, and commissioning. It isn't a prediction or a promise that may or may not come true at some future point. You are salt. You are light. Period. That was their status. That is your status. That is my status. Full stop. Here's the thing with turning Jesus' blessings and commissioning into lists of requirements. Here's, here's what happens when we fall into this trap. It means that we spend our life of discipleship chasing the goal rather than realizing that we're already there. We spend our energy trying to be or trying to become rather than realizing that we already are. We spend our time trying to become something that we can't do on our own anyway. Stop trying to be the salt of the earth. You already are. Stop trying to become the light of the world because you already are. The insidious other side of this trap is that if we're too busy trying to be a thing, we are not using our time, talent, and treasure actually being the thing. Salt has all sorts of uses, especially in Jesus' time. Whole books have been written about the use of salt in preserving and healing and commerce and running a home. For us, our most common interaction with it is in cooking. Salt makes every other flavor in a recipe pop. A delicious meal can fall flat without a bit of salt in it. Even baking doesn't taste quite right without the addition of some salt. But salt doesn't work if you leave it in the shaker. Do you hear me? Salt does its thing when it's used, when it's added, when it's spread out. When you shake it onto your french fries. You can't just leave it in the container and tell it it's doing a good job. You are salt of the earth. You don't have to try to become it. You already are it, so get out of the shaker. You already are church. You already are that which preserves. You already are that which heals. You already are that which gives grace and flavor to the world. Stop trying to become it. You already are it. And the same with being light. So just get out there and be what you are. 
Do you recall the statistics about a children's self-esteem in relation to the messages they hear? Psychologists suggest that for every negative message elementary age children hear about themselves, they need to hear 10 positive ones to restore their sense of self-esteem to where it had been previously. And I don't have a lot of time to do cognitive behavioral therapy with all of you this morning, but I invite you to go look this up, because that would answer a few things for most of us. <clears throat> children, to put it another way, become what they are named. Call a child bad long enough, and he or she will believe you and act bad. Call a child, or a teen, or an adult, for that matter, worthless, or unlovable, or shameful, and eventually, they, all of us, will live into the name that they've been assigned. In the same way, call us good, call us useful, call us dependable, helpful, trustworthy, worthwhile, and we will grow into that identity and behavior as well. So, Knox, you are salt. You are light. It is a blessing, a gift. You cannot earn it or become it. That's a trap. You are salt. You are light. And that is a commissioning. That is... Get out and do it. Feed the hungry. House the homeless. Let the captives go free. This is not rocket science. This is what it means to be salt of the earth. And you already are. No excuses. Stop wasting time. Exactly who you are right now, where you are, you are salt of the earth, light of the world. So be it and do it. That is what God intended when Jesus shared the Sermon on the Mount. To God be all the glory. Amen.